You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993, and on Friday, a message he delivered at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Now, here is Tony Evans on Today in the Word radio. A couple of years ago, I was on a cruise, and it was... It was in the Mediterranean. I love cruising because you can go to a lot of places and do a lot of things without having to move around. And you're in this one spot. And uh, uh, so whenever I can, I'll I'll do a vacation on a cruise. Well, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, when I develop a toothache, the cruise, a cruise is not a place where you want to have a toothache. <laughs> not when there's 24-hour food available to you <laughs> every day, all day, for the length of the cruise. It was an excruciating toothache. But I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and there's nowhere to go to resolve my problem. Throbbing, unable to stay awake or sleep. It just pumped with pain over and over and over again. On these cruise liners, they have uh, medical facilities. And I went there and said, please help me with my pain. I'm in excruciating pain, and I need some relief. They gave me some codeine to try to slow down the pain. And for a few moments, it would dissipate, even disappear, only to return with a vengeance. This went on for three days of anguish, agonizing, excruciating, mesmerizing pain as I watched everybody else eat around me. (laughs) When I couldn't take it anymore, when I was so overwhelmed that that I, I couldn't go another minute with this pain, I picked up the phone on the cruise ship and called back to Dallas to my dentist. And I said, I don't know what you can do. I don't know if you can do anything. All I can tell you is I am hurting, and I'm hurting bad. But they're not equipped to fix my problem. They're not equipped to solve my problem. They're not equipped to negotiate my circumstances. They're not equipped to reverse my fortune. Is there anything that can be done? He said, go into a little bit more detail. He said, describe the pain, the nature of the pain, the frequency of the pain, the rotation of the pain. He wanted me to talk about my pain. (laughs) After a few moments of describing more detail, he says, your problem is that you've been treating the wrong problem. Your tooth may hurt, but that's a symptom of a much deeper situation. He says, your tooth is infected. The infection is causing you to have a toothache. He said, if if we deal with the infection, we'll remove the ache. You've been trying to deal with the ache, not understanding it's a problem of infection. He said, so give me the number to the doctor on the ship. I got the ship's number, his extension. I was called down and they gave me some antibiotics for an infection. Now I thought my problem was a tooth, 
when my problem was an infection. And when we resolve the infection, we heal the ache. And I could go back to eating again. <laughs> I believe that far too many of us are addressing the wrong problem. We're addressing the thing that the five senses grasp, what we hear and see and feel and touch and taste, the things that are the obvious. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, chapter 6, excuse me, we are struggling not against flesh and blood. That our battles, our struggles, our fight, our war is not fundamentally physical. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, your primary problem is what you do not see. It does not come in the form of flesh and blood. It comes from an invisible influence in our world and in our lives, creating our struggle, our wrestling match, and our pain. He says it emanates from a whole nother location, a location he calls heavenly places. This explanation or use of verbiage by Paul is unique to him. He says, for example, in Ephesians 1, 3, your blessings are in heavenly places. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus Christ is risen and is seated in heavenly places. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, we are seated with him in heavenly places. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that the angels operate out of heavenly places. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, the demons operate in heavenly places. One might get the impression heavenly places is where all the action is. Heavenly places is a euphemism for the spiritual realm. And what he is saying is that the struggle you are dealing with in the earthly realm is emanating from the spiritual realm. So it goes a little something like this. If all you see is what you see, you do not see all there is to be seen. If all you see is what you see, you do not see all that is to be seen. And that goes on to say that unless you and I learn to operate from that realm, we will be defeated in this realm. Because he says that your struggle, the thing causing you your day-to-day -day angst and anguish does not emanate from the physical realm in which you're feeling the throb. It emanates from a whole nother sphere called heavenly places. And heavenly places has good stuff, Christ, we seated with him, our blessings, angels, and bad stuff. He says the demonic realm and all that's taking place in the unseen realm working itself out in the realm that we see every single day. Your theme this week is knowing Christ. And there is no more important place to know Christ than in the struggles of life. To know Christ in the beautiful music that we heard tonight and the great fellowship that we're experiencing tonight is wonderful. But the reality is many have come in here tonight dragging something behind them. 
And while they will be distracted for an hour or two, they're going to drag it back out that door and they're going to be in anguish and pain. And the Christ I want to know is the Christ who not only gives me a great anticipation for heaven, but who meets me in history. Is a Christ who has covered my eternity, but doesn't skip me in time. I need a Christ who is helping me to deal with this unseen thing that I, I can't touch, I can't, I can't physically grab, but it's messing up my life. It's destroying my family. It's killing my emotions. It's, it's controlling my passions. It's, it's dominating me. And now you tell me that it doesn't even emanate from the world in which I live. It comes from a location called Heavenly Places. In instructing these Christians in Ephesus, who are living in a pagan society with a pagan goddess Diana, with a pagan orientation as they have to deal with the reality of a secular world, Paul writes his most comprehensive statement on spiritual victory in all of the New Testament because he introduces us to the armor of God. Three times in verse 11 and in verse 13 and in verse 14, he says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Translation, don't move, don't move, don't move. Stand firm, hold your ground. Don't, 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 uh, uh, don't vacillate. I want you to hold your ground. Now, now, now we're in a battle, we're in a fight. And he says, stand your ground. Stay stationary. Why would he tell us to do that? Because he's already introduced this section in verse 10 with be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. He wants us to stand firm in somebody else's strength. The Lord, the strength of his might, now you don't budge from that. What he wants us to understand is what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of those of us who know him. That you are not fighting for victory, you are battling whatever you're fighting from victory. He wants you to stand firm. When my son Jonathan, who's now in ministry with me, was playing in the NFL, I, I would go to all of his games. Every game I could get to, I would go to, but there were a few games I missed. I was not able to, because of Sunday, get to the game. So I would look at the replay of the game on NFL Network. I would watch the replay of the game on NFL Network because I didn't make the game when it took place. Now, once the, the replay came up, they put in front of the beginning of the game the score. So I already knew who won. Actually, when my son called me the night after the game, I knew who won, but when they show it on the screen, they say who won, and then they show you the replay. Now, because I already know who won, I'm not shook up by what happens on the screen. When there's a fumble, I don't like it, but I'm not shook up by it, because I know where this thing is going. If there's an interception, I don't like it, but I'm not shook up by it because I understand where this is going to wind up. 
because I have a point of reference in advance of the struggle I'm seeing, the struggle I'm seeing does not control me because I'm standing firm in the point of reference that I have. What the enemy wants to remove you from is the point of reference. If he can remove you from what Jesus Christ has already accomplished by virtue of his substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, ascension up to heaven, and seated on the right hand of the Father, if he can move you from that point of view and keep you focused on what your five senses, flesh and blood, partake of, then the enemy can keep you defeated because you're not standing firm in the victory that's already been achieved. So he says, I want you to stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Don't move, don't move, don't move. And he says, now the way you do that, the way you experience victory in the midst of your struggle, there is a real battle going on. It comes in different shapes and sizes, different colors, but he says the way you do it is by putting on the full armor of God. He says you must dress for success. You must put on the full armor of God. You must stand on what has been completed by Christ in such a way that you are dressed for the victory that has already been won on your behalf. He then gives six pieces of armor. These six pieces of armor are divided into two categories of three. Now the reason we know that these six pieces of armor are divided into two categories of three is because there is a change in the verb between one, two, and three and four, five, and six. The first three are introduced with the verb to be. It has to be a state of being, the way you are. The second three are introduced by the verb to take. So he flips verbs beginning with four, five, and six, separate from one, two, and three, because the first three is what you keep with you. You never negotiate the first three. The last three to take, you pick up as the occasion calls for it. So the first three, you never leave home without it. The last three, you handle as the situation dictates. He then lists the six pieces of armor, And when you have, which I only have a moment to summarize each one, but when you understand the six pieces of armor, you come to know Christ. Because each piece of armor is merely a reflection of the person of Jesus Christ. It is just placed in a wartime scenario. The first thing he says, which we are all aware of, is put on the belt of truth. Now you must understand that this scenario he's describing is a battlefield. So he's talking about your real life struggles. He says the first thing you're going to have to do is put on a truth belt. So let's define truth. Truth is an absolute standard by which reality is measured. An absolute standard by which reality is measured. Truth is reality in its original form. Let's put it another way. Truth is God's view of any subject matter. 
Truth is God's view of any subject matter since truth is reality in its original form and since God is the originator of all reality, if truth is reality in its original form and origination starts with God, then truth must be whatever God says about any subject you're discussing. He says, I want you to put on your truth belt. Now, I'm in a battle. Why do I need a truth belt? Because the person you're fighting is a liar. He not only is a liar, he is the father of lies. He's like my mother used to tell me, boy, you ain't nothing but a born liar. It's, it's a liar from the beginning, the scripture says. Because he is a liar, he can't handle the truth. So truth must be used in your battle. Now, let's get this straight. Truth transcends how you feel. How you feel is to never be the measurement of whether you're dealing with the truth. Please do not misunderstand me. You do not deny how you feel. If you're happy, you're happy. If you're sad, you're sad. If you're mad, you're mad. If you're glad, you're glad. That's just how you feel. But how you feel should never determine what you declare to be true. No matter what you're battling today, you are to speak what God says about it, not speak merely how you feel about it. Because if what you feel about it is not what God says about it, you have invited Satan to control the arena of your battle. You must speak the truth. You must declare what God says it is. If I say I have a headache, my head is throbbing, I, I have a terrible headache and I go to Walgreens and I get some Excedrin PM because I want to alleviate my headache. I take the aspirin, but the headache doesn't go away. I go to the doctor. He does a scan. He says, you have a tumor. I went to Walgreens to address how I felt, but how I felt was not the truth of what was wrong. Until somebody told me the truth, I could not deal with how I felt. As long as I only leaned on how I felt, I'm satisfied with Excedrin PM. Until somebody who knows what they're talking about tells me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Because then I can deal with the struggle. You know, uh, uh, one, one movie that that I, I went to see. Is it, is it okay to say here, Moody? One movie. It was uh, Inception. That's a headache movie. Inception. For you spiritual people who didn't see it, Inception was about um, this guy who could delve into other folks' dreams. He could get into their dreams to see what they were thinking. He perfected his craft so that not only could he get into their dreams, he could get into their dreams' dreams. He can get into what the dream was dreaming. He so perfected his craft that he could get into the dream's dream dream. He could get into what the dream was dreaming and what that dream was dreaming about. By the time you got to the end of the movie, he could get to dreams in the fourth power. He could get to the dreams, dreams, dream, dream. Now the problem was he ain't know where he was. 
this dude is a confused guy because he doesn't know which dream he's in and he doesn't know which reality is real because everything is coming together now and he is confused and everybody in the theater is confused with him. (laughs) And so what Leonardo DiCaprio had was what he called a totem, a spinning top. And before he entered the dream, he would spin the top. When the top kept spinning, it was an indication that he was in the dream because the the, the top wouldn't spin. When he was outside of the dream, the top would slow down and stop. In other words, he needed something outside of himself to tell himself what was real. Satan has done such a number in this world order, we don't know what's real. We know what we feel is real, think is real, want to be real, We need a totem, something outside of ourselves to tell ourselves what reality is. And that's what the word of God is. It is your totem. It is your objective standard. And you are to declare what's real based on what God says, regardless of who else says it or how you feel about it. That is, if you want to stand firm. He says, now put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're in a struggle. You're in a struggle against principalities and powers and world forces. Righteousness is that standard that is acceptable to God. Now the reason why that other world wants you in unrighteousness, sin, is because once they have you in an unrighteous state, they can now occupy the environment. Demons are attracted to unrighteousness. The problem with sin is not just sin. The problem with sin is what sin attracts. So you not only have the problem of the sin itself. If you've ever had occasion to have trash laying around your house for any extra amount of time, you may wind up with some unwanted guests. Some ants or some roaches you may wind up with some folk you never formally invited. You just created an atmosphere that made them think they were invited. So by virtue of the trash that is the unrighteousness, they have been allowed to come in so that now you have a double problem. You have the problem of the trash and the problem of the demons that have exacerbated the trash. And it is unfortunate today that New Testament Christians have lost the theology of demonology to understand that the reason why addictions exist is because the person who is addicted is not just addicted to the thing they are addicted to. They are the addicted to the thing they are addicted to that has been exacerbated by demonic invitation and since demons have been invited to participate because unrighteousness is a breeding ground for them to invite themselves their aunts their uncles their cousins and the rest of their family the battle is so deep because they're not just battling the thing they're battling the invitation that the thing gave to the principalities and powers and world forces So the draw or the motivation for righteousness of the heart, the pump, the chest, is to make sure that we do not exacerbate the problem of sin with the unwanted guests of demons with whom we are actually wrestling. He says, thirdly, you are to put on the shoes of peace. The shoes of peace. 
There is nothing that will confirm that you are in the place you ought to be, doing you what, what you ought to do, than the practical, confirming peace of God. But look, peace is number three. Because you'll never get peace if you don't have truth. And you never get peace if you aren't right with the Lord. But if you have truth and you are right, it gets confirmed with peace. So the question is, what is peace? He says, have your feet shod, covered with peace. Why your feet? Because that's what you're moving with. That's how you make your directions. That's how you go in the, the, the place you, you think you should go in. God confirms truth and righteousness with peace. But what is peace? Peace is not merely calm because people can have calm in any number of circumstances. Two men were asked to paint a picture of peace. One man painted this awesome picture of sheep walking along still water with the sun setting in the, in the rear of them and it was all so calm. Another man painted a picture of peace and there was a storm. Lightning, thunder, blackness, the billows rolling in the water. In the corner was a little bird with its mouth open, notes coming out of its mouth and one little light coming out of heaven shining on the bird. That's peace because it's peace that you're not supposed to have given the storm you're going through. That's why the Bible calls it a peace that passes understanding because I don't understand why I have it given what I'm dealing with. The way God confirms that you're right where you're supposed to be even though you're in a struggle in life is you give, he gives you calm in the midst of a storm. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 4, he said, let us go to the other side. They all got in the boat halfway over. They ran into a lilac. The Greek word is a lilac is a windstorm that brings turbulence in the basin of the Galilee Sea. Well, this windstorm caused these professional fishermen to be afraid, insecure, and to ask, Don't he, doesn't he care that we perish? What's bad about that story is Jesus asleep. What good is the Savior who sleeps on you when you're in a storm? Not only is he asleep, he's asleep on a cushion. That's a pillow. Now, anytime you done tuck the pillow up under your head, that means you meant to go to sleep. And you're not just nodding, you're sleeping on purpose. What good is the Savior who goes to sleep on you on purpose and you in a storm? They wake him up and say, carest thou not that we perish? What, what? And, and we've all felt that. God, do you care about this struggle I'm going through? My life is falling apart. My family's falling apart. I'm trying to live for you. I'm trying to please you. Don't you care? They said, wake up, Jesus. Jesus wakes up and says, uh, why are you so timid, oh, ye a little faith? Say, what? Why are we so timid? I can see Peter now. Why are we so timid? Why are we so timid? Oh, maybe Jesus, because we're getting ready to die. <laughs> Why would Jesus say that? I can feel the disciples' pain because before they ever left the shore, Jesus said, let us go to the other side. Jesus said, I don't know about y'all, but we going to the other side. Jesus knew where it was going. They probably did like many of us are doing here today, saying amen to the sermon, other side, other side, other side. Jesus said we're going to the other side. 
But what happened is their circumstances caused them to forget the truth. And so they reacted to their circumstances. The moment they saw Jesus put a pillar under his head, they should have put a pillar under their head because the word said, we all getting over to the other side. Jesus stands up and says, peace be still. I would have thought Jesus would have said, storm be still. But I guess when you're in the will of God, there's supposed to be peace even if it's raining. He says, God confirms where you are based on truth and righteousness with confirmed peace. And that's how you roll. That's the, that's the to be verb. Then he goes to the next one. He says, to take up the shield of faith. This is a misunderstood word. Faith can get a little amorphous. How do you know do you have it? Is, that the, is there a feeling called faith? And what happens if I don't feel faithish? <laughs> what, what is this thing called faith? Let's make this real practical here. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Faith is acting like it is so even when it's not so in order that it might be so simply because God said so. You measure faith by the movement of your feet. If your feet are not moving, you don't have faith no matter how faithish you feel. Faith is the action of the feet that activates the provision of God. People sit in their pews week after week and say, I have faith faith but their feet hasn't moved if your feet hasn't moved you don't have faith that's why it's called walking by faith you're moving he says take up the shield of faith which is able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one take up the shield of faith What are these fiery darts? The Greek word for dart is arrow. But he doesn't just say arrow, he says fiery arrows. As arrows whose tips have been set aflame. You remember the cowboy and Indian movies? The Indians would attack the wagon trains, wagon trains would get in a circle, cowboys would be shooting guns, and they shooting arrows. Well, that's not a, that's not a, a fair fight. But then you'd always have this one smart aleck Indian who would slip the tip of his arrow into oil, light it. That was a fiery arrow. But the fiery arrow was not designed to shoot a cowboy. The fiery arrow was designed to shoot the canvas of the wagon. Because the Indian understood you can't fight fire and fight Indians at the same time. A fiery arrow is designed to create a distraction. You see, your enemy wants to distract you from the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the peace of God, and if he can distract you from acting on what God says and keep you acting on what everybody else says and even what you say to yourself, he will distract you from the provision of God. One of the main reasons we live in defeat is we don't have faith even when we feel full of faith. Because we're not moving on what God says, we're still discussing it, debating it, and philosophizing about it. But until there is movement, 
faith has not been exercised. We've had to install in our church motion detect the lighting to cut down on the electrical costs. We've put in motion detect the lighting. The lights are there, the power is there. When you walk in the room, the lights come on. When you walk out of the room, the lights go off. So electricity is not wasted. The power is already there. The light is already there. But they will not display themselves until they detect motion. When they don't detect an emotion, they're going to stay off. Not because they can't come on, but because they don't want to waste power. God doesn't want to waste his glory. He doesn't want to waste his power. He's waiting to see some movement. And it is the movement that demonstrates faith. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. He's talking to believers here. So he's not talking about the helmet of justification. These folks are already saved. He's called them saints already. He's talking about God's ability to deliver. The word salvation means to be delivered. Justification delivers you from hell. But he's talking to people who've already been justified who need to be delivered on earth. And if you're struggling, you need to be saved. That is, delivered through or around your situation, whatever it might be. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Well, the helmet covers the head and the head is the brain. Whatever you do, it's because your head tells your body to do it. He says, you must think differently. Helmet. Why do you remember the Beverly Hillbillies? <laughs> this is a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. He goes shooting one day and, you know, up from the ground comes a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. He becomes an instant multi-millionaire. He becomes an instant multi-millionaire. Actually, he had always been a multi-millionaire. He didn't know it. He didn't know that since the time he acquired the property, he was a multi-millionaire. He just kept it under the ground and didn't know it was there so he could never benefit from the new purchase that had been made. When Jesus Christ purchased you with your, his own blood, he, he put some stuff in there that will blow your mind. But if you never come to know all the rights and privileges that come to you, let's just take one of them. Every time you take communion, the Bible says that you are to remember the new covenant. The new covenant is that new relationship of covering that comes to every believer who belongs to Jesus Christ. A covenant is like an umbrella, it covers. You can have an umbrella, but if it's closed, it's not doing what the umbrella has been designed to do. A covenant is a covering. And then he says, and I want you to proclaim my death until I come. Well, the question is, proclaim it to who about what? Who, who am I proclaiming his death by taking the wafer and taking the juice and, and proclaiming his death to I come? This is the one time, in communion, is the one time you get the cuss as a Christian. Because it's at communion you can tell the devil to go to hell. You are proclaiming, every time you take communion, you are declaring to the spiritual world, I am under the covering covenant of Jesus Christ and you don't own me anymore. That's why communion 
is the most powerful action of a church. It's more powerful than singing. It's more powerful than preaching, although they go alive, because it's your direct access to Christ to tell hell that it no longer has authority in your life. Jesus wants you to understand that what you have gotten yourself into with this helmet of what it means to be delivered comes from him. Finally, he says, I want you to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interesting. The only offensive weapon, a sword, and it's the only offensive weapon because it's the only thing the spirit uses. He calls it the sword of the spirit. The spirit doesn't use what you think. He doesn't use what your mama taught you. He doesn't use just, just, just stuff. He, he uses his word. Now, the Greek word for word is the word rhema. You have the logos. Well, let's start with the graphe. You, you, you have the graphe, and that is the, the, uh, the, uh, the book. The book. This, this book is the graphe. It is the record. You have the Logos. The Logos is the content of the record. It's what the record says and what the record means. So the Graphe, the book, that's the record. The Logos, the content, meaning of the record. But then you have the Rhema. Now the rhema is the utterance, it is the speaking of it, it is the declaring. It's what Jesus did in the wilderness. Satan says, you're hungry, you need to eat. Jesus Googles bread. <laughs> Jesus Googles bread and he comes up on Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he pasted it to his contemporary situation. He takes the Old Testament word, and here it is, he speaks it to the devil. Now, I understand we're at Moody Bible Institute and you are taught the word, but please do not limit your discussion of the word to other believers only. You need to learn to have Bible studies with the devil. Jesus had a Bible study with the devil. He said, devil, have you read this scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 8? He takes him up to a high mountain. You ever notice that? God lets the devil jerk Jesus around. Come here. Takes him up to a high mountain. Jesus says, it is written. He takes him and shows him all the kings of the world. Jesus says, have you read this verse? You shall worship the Lord and serve him only. God like must like baseball. Three strikes, the devil was out. Because the devil cannot handle scripture used against him, spoken to him. Jesus used the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Greek word for sword is dagger. It's not the long sword of Zorro. It's the short sword, sword or dagger of close-up battle. It's when the devil is all up in your grill. It's when he's jacking your life up, when he's all up in your face. And you say, let's have a Bible study since you want to be close. <laughs> and you use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there's six pieces of armor. But your theme is knowing Jesus. Uh, well, um, 
Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am your righteousness. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Jesus says, I am the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus says, I am the captain of your salvation. And I am the living word. So you see, all you need to do is put on Jesus. And when you put on Jesus, you have on the armor. The armor does not mean you will not have battles because this context is a struggle. It means that the enemy won't have the last word. Another movie I went to in my carnal moment. was the Matrix. And since confession is good for the soul, I saw all three. The Matrix, the Matrix Reloaded, and the Matrix Revolution. His name is Thomas Anderson. Thomas Anderson is a full-time computer programmer and a part-time computer hacker. But he is whisked away into another realm computer-generated realm called the Matrix. And when he finds himself in this realm he knew nothing about, he finds that there he has powers he's never dreamt of. <laughs> he finds there he's got a love he never imagined named Trinity. He finds out there He's part of a community he didn't know named Zion. He finds out there he has an enemy he was unaware of named Mr. Smith. He finds out there he has a new name, Neo. He finds that when he learns to operate in that realm, while there is still multiple struggles in that realm, he is more than equipped to address them when he's willing to leave this realm behind. Morpheus looks at him and says, in my left hand, Neo, is a blue pill. You take this blue pill and you can go back to your plain or ordinary life. You take this blue pill and we'll pretend that this was a dream and that none of this was real and you can go back the way you came from and this will all be forgotten shortly. But Morpheus says the Neo in my right hand is a red pill. If you take this red pill, that means you're not going back there. It means you're going to stay here in this new realm with these new clothes and these new abilities and these new love and this new people and with these new powers and you're going to do this new battle but from a different point of view. If you take this red pill, you will discover life as you never imagined. As we dismiss today, I offer you two pills. You can, at the benediction, leave here with a blue pill and go back to your plain or ordinary life, your plain or ordinary struggle. You can go back to getting up, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to church, and then repeat it. You can go back and we'll just pretend this was another Founders Week at Moody and we'll wait for the next one next year. Or you can take this red pill and say there's another location called Heavenly Places. 
there's another realm out there that I want to be a part of. Because in that realm, there's power that I never dreamt of, people I didn't know, a love I never imagined, and yes, an enemy that is formidable. But in that realm, I'm more than a conqueror. So here you are. Blue pill, red pill. You choose. Shall we pray? Father, equip us for the battle and show us that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message titled Jesus, the Key to Spiritual Victory that Tony Evans presented at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us again next week as we bring you five messages J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.